0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's good to be home. After, did you miss me? Yes. Yeah. Well, both of you did. All right, well, it's good to be back. You know, um, I was thinking about this, uh, this trip away. I think 16 days I was away from my house. Um, half of it, my wife was with me And then, then she left me alone as well and, and I was left to my own devices and uh, Well, not completely to my own but, but left alone And so none of my family um, A few parishioners But just here and there Not, not the whole parish family and, and here I felt like in, you know, sort of I don't know, in exile I was, I was going away from I went to a couple churches They were delightful churches uh, But they weren't this church that wasn't this congregation. Um, the preacher was fine, but he wasn't this one, you know. Um, they they were good places to be, and I, and I enjoyed them immensely. Uh, in fact, uh, on Friday night, um, I was at St. Philip's Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, big uh, cathedral-style church, you know, with uh, Corinthian columns and and little statuary and, and little cherubs looking at you from above the you know guarded by angels and gargoyles, and all that sort of stuff you know um, and it was just a beautiful building, great place to be and you know it was full there was a conference going on, so there was this full church and and great singing and in fact, as I went to receive communion, um, they were singing, "Be thou my vision a, a great uh, uh, you know, hymn that, that we sing often here. In fact, we'll sing it today. And, and, and I'm thinking of you as I'm walking forward. And so, here I'm, I, I was thinking about this lesson today. The Lord Jesus. He, um, he grew up in Nazareth. He has just recently left baptism. And then you know the story. Forty days in the wilderness, fasting, eating Nothing. And I thought how that contrasted with my own uh, little 16-day junket away. Because mine was nothing like fasting, eating nothing, you know. Um, it was quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, I was with all the uh, people from our church on, almost every night. And, um, and it was more like Isaiah 25, you know. On this mountain, there will be this rich feast of well-aged meats and, and well-aged wines. I thought, yeah, this is where it is. But, but that wasn't Jesus' experience, not at all. His experience was quite different to be away from home. It was an experience of fasting and temptation. And then, only then, after this period of being away, you notice his fame is beginning to spread. At the beginning of the lesson, people were beginning to talk about him. And then he goes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. He goes back home. Imagine how it must have been for him to go back to his home synagogue. Like a church. A gathering place where people worship. And, and here he is, he's been welcomed to be the preacher of the day. He stands up to read the scroll, and then he sits down. Now listen, in, in, in his world, when a, when a, a, a rabbi was would preach, they wouldn't preach standing up as I'm doing now, they would sit down. They would sit down in a chair in the center of the synagogue, and it was a chair of authority, and so he was speaking from the chair. Even today, the word cathedral um, comes from the Greek word for chair. Um, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, it's out of the chair. He speaks from the chair. That's, the word to speak from the seat is, is a place of authority. And so when Jesus sits down to speak, he is speaking from this place of authority. And he begins to, to, uh, to preach from this lesson. This lesson that he read That comes from Isaiah. Let me reread to you just this passage from Luke's Gospel. When Jesus reads the scroll, when the scroll was handed to him, he reads from Isaiah 61 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This only makes sense. What Jesus begins to tell them in the passage that goes on only makes sense if you understand Israel's history. If you understand the story of Israel, one of the difficulties that many people have in understanding the New Testament is they really don't understand the Old Testament. It's difficult to pick up a book and read it at the, you know, skip seventy-five percent of it, (laughs) and then get to the last quarter of it and try to make sense. It's, it's like listening to a phone conversation where you only get part of it. Let me back up and then just remind you the broad broad brush strokes of Israel's story: creation, you know, and fall, you know, this problem with humanity, and then God calls Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac, who has a son, Jacob, who has twelve sons, from which come the twelve tribes of Israel. They wind up down in Egypt. You remember Moses, let my people go, and they leave, uh, leave Egypt, go through the Red Sea, and then wander for forty years in the desert. Eventually, eventually, they come to the to the precipice, the the the, the cusp of entering into the land. Now, the land is central to. Israel's self-identity. When God called Abraham, he says to him, If you go from your father and your mother to the land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation. Land is central to the promise to Abraham. It is the reason why this little piece of real estate in the Middle East is still to this day such a hotly contested piece of real estate. It's why people say, well, we can't give up land for peace because why? This land was given to us by God. This is the argument, right? This is the the essence of, of what's going on in the Middle East even to this day. The land was central to Israel's identity. Living in the land meant you were living in the fullness of the promise of God. And so here they are on the edge of the land getting ready to cross the Jordan River into Israel. What is uh, the land of Canaan at the time what we now call the land of Israel they were getting ready to enter into that land and as they were just the very last minute just before they crossed over I want to read to you what Moses says to Israel he says this is from God this is Deuteronomy chapter 28 Moses speaking for the Lord says this if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessing, blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed you shall be in the field, blessed in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of the ground, in the fruit of your cattle, in the increase of your field, your young, your, your young flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed will you be when you come in, And blessed will you be when you go out. Did you catch that? If you listen to me, if you follow these commandments, Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. Ten commandments come not once but twice in the Old Testament. I gave them to you and I gave them to you again. Now listen, Israel. If you you listen to me, if you obey these and you go into the land and you live by them, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to lift you high up above all other nations of the earth. You'll be blessed when you go in, blessed when you go out. Blessed in the city, blessed in the country. Blessed in your flocks and your herds and all this other stuff. It's going to be blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But what if you don't? (laughs) Moses contemplated that as well. And he says the Lord has a word here. But if you will not avoid... uh, This is uh, chapter 28, verse 15 of Deuteronomy. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God... Or be careful to do all his commandments and the statutes that I command you today. Then shall all these curses come uh, and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. And in the field. And in your basket. And in your kneading bowl. In the fruit of your womb. And every place where you would have been blessed. You're going to be cursed. And here's where it ends. And if you still don't turn back. I will remove you from the land. Okay, so here it is, right? The promise to Abraham give you this piece of land. A long time later, finally, we're getting the land. We're going into the land. And the promise is listen, obey the word of the Lord. Because if you don't, you're not going to be in the land. And Israel, for a while, does. They obey the Lord. You know the stories of David and Solomon and the kings, and there's some good days. And Israel becomes prosperous, they become powerful. They become much more powerful and well-known than their size or, or, or uh, you know, location you'd think they would. They become really a powerful nation. And then they begin to turn away. They begin to get bored. They want to be like the other nations around them. They want multiple gods. Why just one god? He doesn't even have an image. We're the only people in the world who serve a god that doesn't have an image. Everybody else has idols. They have statues. And they have more than one. I mean, they get, like, you know, the God of the country, and the God of the sun, and the God of the water, and all these. We want more gods. And their moral restraints? Not so difficult. They can do whatever they want. They can live however they want. They can, they can pervert justice without any sort of punishment. They can sleep with whoever they want. They have no restrictions on anything in their lives. We want to be like them. And that's exactly what Israel does. They begin to live like the nations around them. And then the prophets come. I've taken you through three quarters of the Old Testament already. And then come the prophets. And the prophets say, Israel, turn back. God will not withhold His punishment forever. Turn back. That's what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, this is what they all say. Israel, turn back. And you know the story. Do they turn back? No. And they're invaded in the north by Assyria. And they're invaded in the south by Babylon. And they are taken as exiles out of the land. This wasn't an accident of history. It wasn't just the way they did warfare in the ancient Near East. This was exactly what God had said through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Almost a thousand years before it happened. Do this. Do this. You'll be blessed. Turn against me. You'll go into exile. And up until the time of Jesus, Israel, though they had been returned to the land, continued to live under the oppression of foreign countries. Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, the Syrians, Ptolemaic dynasty, eventually the Romans. And Jesus shows up. In all that context, think all that big story. And he says, today I have good news for you. What Isaiah predicted, even before Israel went into exile, somewhere around 700 B.C., today is the day when God is going to release Israel. And notice what's going to happen. Did you hear it? I bring the, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus reads from Isaiah, because he has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. Now, when we hear that, you know, our minds, we immediately jump to economics, right? Oh, this is good good news. And it is good news for the poor. It is good news for those who live on the very scraps of of wealth that exist all around. It is good news that God has not forgotten them, even if everybody else has. But that is not really what Jesus is getting at. Poor is not... About economics so much as it is a metaphor for those who are in spiritual poverty. Who have no light of God in their souls. Jesus is saying, I have come to give you riches beyond riches. And this is the kind of wealth that you don't need to have any kind of bank account to enjoy. You could be the poorest person on the face of this planet right now. And if you know the Lord Jesus, you are, you are alive, you are rich. You are rich. You could sit around the table with, you know, a few crackers and a piece of cheese and and have the blessings of of one another in a fellowship of of faith and know that you are rich. Do you know, I mean, do you know, Holy Trinity Hudson, that you are rich? Rich beyond measure. That you have a wealth and an abundance of resources that have nothing to do with paper dollars. Isn't it funny that we think something's really valuable that's made out of paper? You couldn't do anything with that. You couldn't build anything. Or you couldn't make a boat. I mean, it would be no good in any other context except that we exchange it and make it valuable. There is a wealth. There is a wealth that we have that is not paper money. It is not coins. It is not buildings. It's not storehouses. It's a treasure of faith. And Jesus says, I come to bring good news. To the poor. And, and I, we can stay here for a minute, but I can't. Recovery of sight to the blind. You know this. You know where I'm going here, don't you? This. He's not talking about ophthalmology, right? This isn't. I, I, I came and I bring an eye surgeon. As delightful as it is that the Lord Jesus does in fact heal the eyes of blind people. He doesn't do it to prove his divinity. doesn't do it to say, oh look, aren't I great? Isn't this a fantastic miracle? Because it, it could be any other kind of miracle. Healing the eyes of the blind is about a spiritual reality. It's about being able to see. You know what St. Paul says, right? He says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they may not see the glories of the gospel. Right? Blind is a spiritual blindness. You know what St. John says in the book of Revelation to the, to the church of Laodicea, right? You think that you are rich... And you think that you are, are you know, spiritual and powerful. But what does he say? You are really poor, blind, and naked. And he doesn't mean that in a literal sense. Blindness, all through the Bible, becomes a metaphor for spiritual blindness. For not being able to see that God is present in the world. Jesus says, I came to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind. And freedom to the captives. Think how this sounds to people who have lived in exile. Think how this sounds to people who have lived under the oppression of foreign governments. I've come to bring good news. An end to the exile. The entrance of the grace of God. Now, here's where things get really messed up. Because everybody thinks to themselves, Oh, so what you want to do is take us back to the good old days of David and Solomon. When we're back on the top, you know the heap of the countries, when we are a political power, or we have a strong army and a big a big national government and a, and a big national economy, no. I came to bring you real freedom, freedom from the entanglements of sin, freedom not to be under the oppression of the enemy of your soul. This is what good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, the freedom for the oppressed and the captives is all about. Uh, John West, or Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be, it is the anthem of my seminary, Asbury in Wilmore, Kentucky, And Can It Be That I Should Gain an Entrance in the Savior's Blood. There's a third line that goes this, um, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God's eye diffused a quickening, life-giving ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. What Wesley is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that there is a freedom from the oppression, the blindness, the poverty of spirit that we have born as children of nature into this world. He came to give us a gift of a gift that makes us rich. A gift that helps us to see. A gift that sets us free from oppression. There's a story of this, um, this uh, chemistry professor who, um, who took his students and, and uh, you know, had, had shown them all these, um, these acids and how they dissolved uh, metals. But he gave them some gold, some flakes of gold, and, and he told them, I want you to use these acids and, and try to dissolve this gold. And I'll be back in a little while. And so he leaves, and and they all try to use every acid they have, and none of them will dissolve the gold. And so they get clever, you know, as chemistry students are wont to do. And they start mixing acids and putting mixtures of acids in together. Still nothing. Goes on for a long time. Eventually a professor comes back, and he says, so how have you done? And they said, we can't dissolve it. We've tried everything. And he hands them this little vial. He says, this is aqua regia royal water. Put some of this in with the gold and see what happens. And they put some flakes of gold in a test tube, pour some of the aqua regia in there, and sure enough, whew, the gold is turned to, uh, you know, dissolved, completely gone in, into the water, into the liquid. And the professor, being a Christian, looks at his students and says, there is something like that in the human heart. That our heart is not penetrable by all the very acids of the world. We cannot become morally right by culture or education or discipline or all the many ways that we try. There is but one thing that will dissolve sin's grasp on the human heart, and that is the grace of God. It is the one thing that sets us free to love Him and to serve Him And to live a life of true wealth, a true life of of goodness and decency and hope. Just the grace of God. That's the good news that Jesus proclaims. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.